0: This is Peter,
1: and this is Tom,
0: and you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right. This is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. Tommy, what do we got?
1: Well, today we're going to talk about something. I know we've thrown this around for a while, this particular visual, and he's definitely one that people might say, oh, yeah, I kind of heard that story but they probably don't know the whole story, and we're not going to be able to get into all of it, obviously, today. But it really is one of those, I guess, individual... Unbelievable. Unbelievable, was forgotten, sounds like a movie. I'm surprised there's not more movies about it. Um, But I guess in a lot of information didn't really come out until, like, the fall of uh, the Soviet Union, which has also been a long time ago. So, again, why is more than this information coming out? But uh, we're going to be talking about an individual known as Witold Pilecki, and he basically was a Polish resistance fighter who voluntarily uh, went into Auschwitz, Started resistance there. He sent secret messages to the Western Allies, and he was the first to sound the alarm about the true nature of really what was going on in this, the largest concentration and extermination camp in Germany, which was Auschwitz. Uh, I mean, it occupied uh, Poland, but not yeah. what the Nazis were doing. He basically sounded the alarm about it um, years before anything was done about it, before uh, the camp was eventually before the war in, ended, even yeah, forty five. Yeah, before the war ended, he snuck in. He eventually sneaks out of Auschwitz too.
0: Which is crazy. I this whole story is just surreal to me. This is a person that volunteers to go into Auschwitz. Like yeah. like you said, he he creates this like hidden underground resistance within Auschwitz, starts passing messages to the Polish government in London through which they are passed directly to the British SOE and the allies as to what is happening there. Eventually escapes Auschwitz and then compiles his whole report in like in 43. Um, as to what is happening in Auschwitz. He's talking about the gas chambers. He's talking about mass executions. This is all basically hand delivered to Churchill and Roosevelt. Like, this guy is like, this is what's happening. And no one really does anything about it. You know, and, and we'll get to it, but he has a pretty tragic end uh, shortly after the war, too. So, dealing with I think, the,
1: all the repercussions and raise, rise of communism in Eastern Europe. And yeah, he just yep. kind of gets swallowed up by all that. Yeah.
0: His actual report that he wrote was not really published until like the 2000s. Obviously, the Nations had it, and it was in Library of Congress, I think the U.S. had a copy, but published for the public wasn't really until the 2000s. So I think we'll also get into, obviously, the idea of what Auschwitz was and what that was about. Uh, Most of us know just from studying about the Holocaust in our schools and and just know because we know, but we'll get into a little bit more about what Auschwitz's life was like, what was actually happening in Auschwitz, and then we'll get into... Pileski's story of, okay, who is this guy, and how does he wind up being there, and then what does he do when he's there? So Auschwitz, I think we, that's a good way to start, right? Yeah. Probably the most infamous concentration camp.
1: It was one of, uh, like, when you think Holocaust and everything, that's always, most of all the footage is shown from Auschwitz, obviously, and a lot of the, um, the that's a the name that comes to mind, right? Absolutely, so. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, was the, it was the
0: largest. It was. Because it, it, it had parts. A lot of people don't realize that. They think yeah, it's it just, just one place. Part. Yeah, Literally. You had Auschwitz I, which was the main camp. Then you had Auschwitz II, Birkenau, which was the concentration that was the, the extermination camp with gas chambers. That was designed <laughs> specifically to kill people. Before and that, then you yeah. had Auschwitz III, which is more of like a labor camp. So all three, they also had like a dozen or so sub camps on top of all that. So this became the fulcrum of the Nazis' final solution, the concentration camp. I mean, what would you call it? Well, it's a yeah, death complex, whatever. Yeah, it was complex. That, that was the word I was looking for. Most of it survives Auschwitz one, Auschwitz 2. I was there actually last month um touring it, and it's it's a it's a pretty intense place, and that's an understatement. So Auschwitz, just you know, so on the same page, was not located in Germany, it was located in German-occupied Poland. So Germany, real quick, invades Poland in 1939. And Auschwitz were actually army barracks originating. And it is converted in 1939, late 1939, into a prisoner of war camp. That's kind of how it starts. And the initial transport of detainees to Auschwitz in 1940 were political prisoners. Almost all of them were Poles that were brought in, which kind of plays a role as to why Pilecki ends up going in there. For the first like year and a half, two years... This was a basically like a prisoner of war Polish prisoner of war camp, um, and that starts to shift like a year and a half, two years in, into becoming a essentially primarily a Jewish camp, and then eventually a Jewish extermination camp. Once the Auschwitz II, which yeah. is literally minutes away from Auschwitz I, is built.
1: Yeah, what I saw, this is it followed the mold like a lot of other concentration camps later followed. like pretty much what the Germans did is the first one, like it was constructed for three purposes. The first one was to really just to um, round up all the perceived enemies of the Nazi regime, particularly mm-hmm. started in Poland, I right? Keep them there. Then it was to provide a source of forced labor for the SS, right? Um, and all their enterprises later on armaments for the war. And then the third part, which then became like the primary as the war evolved, was a service that basically like target and kills groups of a population whose death was determined by the SS that this was essential to get rid of these people, part of the final solution to ensure, the, as their mind, the security of Nazi Germany. So Auschwitz was kind of like the blueprint that the other camps would start, start to follow as time yep, went on. Ab-
0: absolutely. And the first gassings, official gassings um, of Jews, uh, initially actually started with Soviet and Polish prisoners, some of which were Jewish. Uh, and that happened in Block 11 of Auschwitz I. And Auschwitz I, as I mentioned before, um, if you go see it today, it, that was not the death camp. The death camp was down the road, in Auschwitz II. But the first gassing started in, in Block 11, which is the infamous block of Auschwitz, and I'll get to it later. Auschwitz I, about August 1941, and shortly thereafter is when you have the construction of Auschwitz II that's completed, and from 1942 until late 44, basically Jews, as kind of as you alluded to, Tom, were brought from all over German-occupied Europe to these gas chambers. Overall, they said about 1.3 million people were sent to Auschwitz, out of which 1.1 million were murdered in the gas chambers at Auschwitz. Close to a million were gassed right on arrival. And you had... Yeah, even
1: able-bodied people, they just sent them right there. Yeah. That's basically
0: what it became. Um, Overall, a lot of people may not know this, but there were at least 802, based on this research that I found potential escapee people that try to escape so escape attempts you would say um out of those 800 escape attempts 144 were successful real quick uh soviet army basically approaches auschwitz in january of 1945 um towards the end of the war and they uncover officially uncover something that what we are going to talk about today technically our allies already knew about and they flew sorties over this bombers flew over auschwitz Right. And, and never did anything about it. They were it. aware of it.
1: Well, and there was, there's a lot of conflicting reports there. And I get, you know, it's, I guess you know, we're not, we're not getting like super political or super, you know, you people can have their own opinions on it one way or the other. We just like to give like the facts and information, but there's some documents and stuff. And obviously Roosevelt Churchill knew about it. And some people say, Oh, they had to be like, they didn't care. And I mean, you, I can't. We don't know for certain. I was going to say we I, can't like,
0: get in their head. Yeah, yeah.
1: But a lot of the uh, paperwork, or so many other, you know, a lot of historians will argue that listen, they did care, but they their their belief was the only way, the best way to save these people is to win the war. We to that defeat was, Germany. So we have to defeat Germany. Just you know, to defend. What are they, The bombing the camp wasn't really going to do anything. The argument also said is you're, you're going to go end up killing the prisoners there. Why are we going to mm. bomb the camp? I mean, we're not, we don't have army units right there yet. So the best way to beat the – liberate them. I don't think they too – they probably didn't um, know the extent. But you can make the argument for what uh, you know. Vitol tells them later on. Maybe they did know yeah. a bit more. Who knows? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, well, maybe they just didn't believe it too. I mean, it was, it's one of those things. So even when it came out, a lot of people were like, "Is this? how does, how does something like this happen? As he said, the, the Russians liberated on January 27, 1945. And if you actually look, there's a small New York Times article – when I say small, it is a small New York Times article that says Russian uh, Soviets liberate Nazi death camp, and that's it. Oh, don't it's tiny, it made, and I don't even think it made the small. front page. No, it went for it was like barely somewhere in the corner. Yeah. It's maybe like a couple hundred words. That's it. That's all. Actually, the only mention of Auschwitz for years until really, until you get to the, the trials after the war, you don't really hear yeah. about it much. You know, it really doesn't become part of like the narrative with the Holocaust until years later after the war, when a lot more disinformation. <laughs> is is coming out and more of the survivors are starting to speak
0: nuts nuts um so from VTold, we kind of really uh learn as to the life in camps and what's what's really going on here one thing i find it like kind of disturbing one thing i find disturbing jesus we'll talk about an kinda, understatement yeah. i know <laughs> <laughs> an understatement yeah, rudolf uh, haas was um the first commander at auschwitz right uh 1940 he was became the commander he moved in to auschwitz with his family like he brought his yeah. wife and kids and they lived in camp. Okay. Like you bring your kids. But again, I guess to these people, this was completely inhumane. But I guess to them, this was considered... It was normal. their job. It was yeah, their job. It was it their it's duties. Nuts. It's nuts to me. About 6,335 people out of the 3, 000, 6,335, most of them over 6,000 were men. Um, They worked, it out, worked at Auschwitz over the camp's entire existence. So you had over 6,000 workers. It's almost like... What happened to the 6,000 workers at Auschwitz after the war? Most of them, um, well, like 4% were officers. 26 were non-commissioned officers. And then 60, like nine seventy percent were rank and file. There were also 700 SS guards that were brought in. And as you study history, the SS guards are considered the some of the most cruel um, German soldiers. So let's, uh, let's kind of get into a little bit, I guess, how he makes it, Vito makes it in there, and then we'll talk a little bit about more about the life itself, um, what life was like for the inmates and whatnot. Vito Pilecki, he was born into an aristocratic Polish family, in a farming family in 1901. As a young man, and he was you know t- late teens, early twenties, he fought the Soviets in the Polish-Soviet War, which kind of solidified Polish independence at the end of World War One. This is early 1920, 21. Um, he earns a lot of citations for gallantry, becomes um, kind of like a war hero, but n- not huge that is known around Poland. Um, he inherits family land shortly after World War I, and then he takes up basically life as, a, as like a country gentleman. He marries, because again, aristocratic family. Um, he winds up getting married, he has two children, and he lives more or less as an aristocrat. Uh, then the Nazis invade Poland in 1939 at the start of World War II. Basically, beginning World War II. And Pilecki is called back into military service due to the fact that he held a certain rank in the uh, previous war. Uh, Poland winds up falling in about a month, and it's split by the Nazis and the Soviets. Uh, At that point, Pilecki goes into hiding and joins... The first, like, underground Polish resistance movement.
1: Polish resistance. And I think it's important to talk about the Polish resistance a little bit because, obviously, the French resistance is very famous, and I'm not knocking the French resistance over there. But if you go to any, like, research that that talks about it, in fact, over half of all the intelligence from the continental Europe to reach London came from the Polish underground. Most of that came. From the Polish underground, it was the biggest operation in Europe. They provided the highest quality intelligence. The most prized, they 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 always it always wound up being true. So most of the intelligence that the Allies got from behind German lines was from the Polish resistance. So again, not knocking the French. It's just one of those things that the obviously the post-war world and everything like that, and communism, the Cold War, the French get a lot of credit. I'm not discrediting anything that they did. But most of the stuff came from the polls. That's just what's, what. That's just, that's just a fact. So it's not going to be that can't be argued. And they were and it was really a lot about like their capacity, their war production. Like they knew detailed stuff, and it was because of people like Vito that they were able to get that information that were risking their lives, you know, going into these camps to get this information. And it just you know it helped with the war effort. Incredibly. Yeah.
0: No, no, absolutely. This doesn't get talked idea- about as much. Yeah. And, and the idea here, too, is because so many political prisoners are being sent to Auschwitz, some of them write letters back to their family members because they actual prisoners were allowed to write letters, as yeah, long, as, yeah. which is interesting because as long as the letters were in German, so they had to get people in Auschwitz uh, in a camp to actually help them translate letters to their Polish families to write them in German because the rule was all letters have to be written in German. And they were all checked, obviously, upon leaving the camp. But letters start coming out of Auschwitz shortly after the fall of Poland that these political prisoners are arrested and they're writing these letters to their family. So the Polish underground basically decides that, you know what, maybe like we need to figure out what is going on in this camp, like what this camp is about. And this is where he basically volunteers. And there's some stories as to why he volunteers. One of them is the fact that the initial Polish underground, before it evolves into the home army, uh, at first, it's known as TAP. It's not Home Army just yet. The early incarnation of it, the TAP, was a little bit too Catholic and too uh, religious-based. And and Vitold was like kind of against that. And he's like, no, no, I think we need to encompass everyone that's against the Nazis, not just Catholics. It happens shortly thereafter. It turns into the Home Army, and it becomes all-encompassing. But at this early, these early stages of the war, it's not quite there yet. So Vitold kind of is against what's happening there. And that par- partially, people believe, is why he's like, you know you know what, I kind of want to get out of this. So I'm going to volunteer, and I'm going to get myself arrested, and I'm going to get into Auschwitz, and I'm going to basically report back to the Polish underground what exactly is happening there.
1: Now, so, he says, yeah, so on September 18th, 1940, he, he placed himself in the middle of a known Gestapo sweep, and he was mm-hmm. sent to Auschwitz. And apparently, as soon as he gets there, he realizes, you know, it was, he wasn't really prepared to what he was going to experience. Um, he yeah. says he like, leaped out of a train car with hundreds of other men, and he was beaten with clubs, like, immediately, like, as soon as they got there. And yeah. um, 10 men around him were randomly just pulled and shot. Um, they were asking him, you know, what their profession was. One guy said a doctor, so they just beat him to death right there, All right, Another person yeah, who, uh, if they suspected anyone was Jewish. They just beat them right there, he was saying. So, uh, everything they had on them were stripped of them. They were shaved and they were assigned a number of sent to prison camps. And that was the yep. beginning of it.
0: Yep. And what's interesting, too, is when he arrived in Auschwitz, he actually arrived uh, under a false name. Because, again, yes. this guy's kind of like a spy, more or less. Uh, and I, I mean, he is. So, it's, I think Serafinsky is the, the name he goes by here. Uh, and he's assigned a prisoner number 4859. It's interesting because as he infiltrates Auschwitz, he's actually promoted to first lieutenant by uh, the Polish government in exile. They promote him for what he's doing. Now, this idea of a number, everyone kind of knows what, what number is about. It's, it's kind of become a symbol of the Nazi oppression, how people that went to concentration camps were assigned a number. It was unique to Auschwitz, only in Auschwitz, that prisoners were tattooed with serial numbers on the left breast if they were Soviet prisoners of war. And then if you were considered a civilian, you were tattooed on the left forearm for any civilian. And then after that, you had categories of prisoners that were distinguishable, yeah, right? By these like different triangular pieces of cloth, this little triangle, that were sewn into the jackets. So depending, again, if you're a political prisoner or not. So political prisoners, mostly Poles at the beginning, had a red triangle um, that was sewn in. Then you had criminals, You know whether they were from Germany, because a lot of war criminals were also brought in. Uh, most of these were German, they were a green triangle, any form of asocial prisoners, you know, um, prostitutes, Roma, any form of prisoner that was not necessarily a criminal, but a prisoner were a black triangle. You had a purple for Jehovah's Witnesses, pink for gay men, who were actually mostly German, ironically, that were brought in. And the Jews were wore the yellow badge shaped as Star of David. So there was a distinction for each person that was there. It wasn't just Jews at the beginning. Yeah, they,
1: they wanted them to actually turn against each other, too, just to get information yeah. and stuff like that. And that's one thing the SS are saying is when they got there, they said, none of you are leaving this place alive. Um, he talks about this one SS guard that said the rations have been calculated so you will only survive six weeks.
0: Like, that's it. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And Cartoons. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at Two DesignersWalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit
1: evergreenpodcasts.com. And like even though the mass gassings didn't begin yet when um Vito was there, the crematorium was up and running and they said the only way you're going to be out is after you after you get cremated. And yep. he talks about basically how prisoners are starving. Um, lice and bed bugs are all over the place. We're constantly on them. Uh, typhus outbreaks. Were, um, throughout the camp and the work assignments, where they've given these work, these were like grueling days. And the guards delighted in punishing them, making things worse for them. So prisoners, a lot of times, stole from each other. They betrayed each other for scraps, like literally just like one more, like this whatever left over and stuff like that. And he talks about how a lot of them were killing themselves just by jumping into the electrical, the electric fence, just because yep. they just couldn't take it anymore. And so he sees it. So he slowly starts to organize, you know, his this underground movement. Mm -hmm. with a few people that he knew uh, before the war. And, you know, it it builds up. He actually has over nearly a thousand people in this network that was designed to steal and distribute food, extra clothing, sabotage all the plans, hide the injured and the sick prisoners. And he just, if nothing else, it basically improved the morale and kind of gave a sense of like togetherness of brotherhood Um, because he also was able to smuggle news in from the outside world. So he kind of got aware of what was going on outside of the camp.
0: Yeah, he no, he's like running like an and and underground and network. Yeah. yeah,
1: another network. So this is like, he's getting information in. he's letting people know. And they are like, you know, actually trying to uh, do as much as they can while, while they're there.
0: Absolutely. And while he's while he's doing all this, this sets up this intelligent network. The reason is because a lot of people are coming in and out of the camp, bringing in food or other things. So it was all about paying people off. I mean, that's, you know, it's a bartering system. And, and yeah. he kind of sets this idea of of a bartering system in here. Like what you would um, see
1: in um, Schindler's List. It's very similar. They, the
0: Nazis could
1: easily be paid off like anybody could.
0: Absolutely. And just, you know, life for the inmates. I mean, the day began at 4.30 a.m., right, so, out of his report. supervisor sounded a big alarm uh, and basically would beat inmates that were unable to get up to the latrines quickly. And if you ever look at the latrine, like the, the bathroom, is, it was – I mean, it was just one big row of holes where people would go and relieve themselves. There were, I think 90 faucets and like sewer channels, but considering there were and like 58 holes um, to go to the bathroom to in all of Auschwitz, and there was thousands of people there, so you could probably imagine. People are beaten all the time. You also had to, when you got up in the morning, you had to stand and wait for the officer to make sure that he did a roll call, but it all depended whether the officer wanted to get there and what time he wanted to get there. So you would stand there for a really, really long time. Prisoners were not given any food. Um, they received half a liter of coffee substitute. So it wasn't really real coffee or some form of tea. You know, they were in rows, no matter what the weather, they waited for this SS person to arrive. Tell them, or are you good to go? And that's when they basically walked them out to work. I mean, this is if you were actually interned in Auschwitz. Because as we know, as Auschwitz continues, some people get there and literally are gassed right on the spot. You left, go left, go to work, go right, you go here. Um, and they brought them right into gas chambers. But those that survived um, ultimately worked every single day. And as you mentioned, they're given hardly any food. The idea is to basically work them about 11 hours long each day until they die and they're just replaced with uh, with the next person next prisoner there was a very infamous prison orchestra that played right by the Auschwitz uh, entrance and above the gate you know you have the infamous saying that said work means freedom and these people in this orchestra was ordered to play cheerful music as these workers left the camp to go to work again this is surreal and um, you had a seven another roll call in the evening same premise. Uh, a lot of prisoners here, if you did something wrong during the day, that's when you were publicly hanged or flogged. Um, if anyone was missing, uh, the other people uh, from that particular building had to remain standing until that absentee person was found. Um, sometimes that took hours. Um, there was one particular event on July 6, 1940. The roll call actually lasted 19 hours because one um, prisoner had escaped. So they, you know, before they found him and they, you know, they made him stand for 19 hours. So very intense as obviously expected life uh, in Auschwitz that, that watching, but then he starts this radio thing, right?
1: When he starts radio, he also gets um, people out. Like there was one, I'm sure you saw Alexander um, Yep. So he was one of the early days and he actually, his family, like we talked about before, was able to bribe and get him, get him out. And rather than giving him papers, Vito makes and memorized a plan and all this information. He actually gets all the way to London and he gives a message which basically was very blunt said, bomb Auschwitz. He even meant killing everyone inside. He said it would be merciful and that the Nazis had to be stopped. And this is in 1941 and um, before the United States was in the war. And the British yep. Air Force was down to feud in like 200 planes and they didn't have radar. The planes didn't have radar and it kind of would stretch the limits of the fuel capacity so the British hadn't didn't really, want, didn't really think they could do it, and they also had no precedent to take action for like hum- humanitarian reasons. It wasn't something that they did yet. And again, and um, Viatov keeps on sending these messages out, like through that radio station, like you're talking about. And would he would get to Polish farmers and neighboring the camp, and that would get the information to to London. And and even after the United States entered the war, and they just still decide not to do it, and the reasoning is they just always kept with that uh, original British decision, you know?
0: Yeah. And then yeah. he
1: even says, "All right, fine. Don't bomb the camp. Bomb the um, bomb the rail lines leading to the camp.
0: Yeah, and
1: stuff like that. Do do something. And they yep. and it was one of the great might have bins in history. Like why you didn't bomb the bomb that camp or do something?
0: Yeah, books, tons of books written about it. Yeah. Um. So his resistance movement in 1942 created basically like a homemade radio transmitter yeah. that they got from like smuggled in parts and, they're, and, they're and doing this
1: because they feel like they have to help themselves. Like they're like, allies yep. aren't going to help us. Now we have to do something ourselves, like a real actual yep. uprising.
0: Yep. So the, yeah. So these inmates are using this radio transmitter to try, like you said, get to the locals just to get to the locals, to get information out, to get uh, provisions in whatever they needed. And it took them about seven months to build this secret radio station. Um, and it broadcast until like late 1942, but then it was basically dismantled because Piletsky believed that some people started, some people within the camp started to kind of become suspicious of him and others that were in his group. So he goes, "Before we get discovered and all of us get killed, we need to we need to get rid of this." So they they broke it apart towards the end of 1942, and at that point, that's when Piletsky like, "All right, you're seeing this shift," and he starts talking about it in his messages about jews being killed and he starts talking about uh particularly you had in auschwitz you had block 11 10 and 11 um ex- medical experiments were done in block 10 and punishment was done in block 11 there was actually a wall where they would shoot people against that wall still stands um and, you know it's like a courtyard between the two buildings and that's where you have block 11 is also the first time you have anyone gas during this time towards end. so he's noticing this big shift of a political camp, um, like a political prisoner camp to like beginning of an extermination camp, or at least a camp where people are ultimately in a, I guess in a slow way brought to their death. And that's what it kind of freaks him out a little bit. He's like, all right, we gotta like, we gotta let people know about this. And that's, he also mentioned this fact he helps people escape, but at the same time, he's starting to think that maybe like if he's ever going to get out, it's time for him to get out as well,
1: well he's getting weaker too yes yep. he's been there for two and a half years he's getting physically weaker the mental tolls taken on him so yeah he decides right it's time for him to leave and that's a, that the only way it's gonna get that camp liberated now is if there's some sort of like uprising and he's gonna have to help you know liberate that camp. organizer yep. yeah so he um he gets he gets some of his friends to help him sneak out he sneaks out through the bakery in the early mm-hmm. hours of April 27th from there he was able to get 1943. To 1943. Yeah, 1943, April yep. 20, 1943. So he sneaks into Warsaw and he was actually briefly reunited with his wife and children. Um, and he he's right away goes right back to work and resistance. But everyone who knows him says he's probably suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. That's what they would uh, mm-hmm. call it nowadays. Um, because he just couldn't reconnect with like his friends and his family. And all he did was write day and night about the horrors he had, he'd witnessed. And yeah. um. He just couldn't handle it. He just, it was, you know, a lot for him. And the summer of '44, I guess we'll skip to that right now, Pete. Yeah. The, the, they see that the Soviets are advancing on the German army. So I, the, the Polish resistance is like, listen, we have to do something. We need to kick the Germans out ahead of the Soviets' arrival or at least, you know, fight them. So when the Soviets come, you know, we'll team up against the Germans. because yep. They want to make sure they can reestablish a sovereign state. They didn't really trust what the Soviets were going to do. And he was one of the thousands of uh, who fought in the Warsaw Uprising, which was the largest action taken by a European resistance group in World War II. Um, and the, the Soviets purposely held; they saw what was going on, and they purposely held back their advance so that the Nazis could crush finish off the poles, up the poles. <clears throat> finish off the yeah. poles, and then they and then they came in and took over. So it actually delayed, you know, um, delivering Auschwitz, which we talked about before, happened on January 27, nineteen forty five, and by then one point one million people had been killed. In that camp, yep.
0: estimated. Yep. That's and that talking. story in itself, the story of us Warsaw Uprising is something maybe one day we could touch upon. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's, it's a crazy story. The Soviets basically, the Poles are like, we're going to liberate our capital before the Soviets get there because we don't trust the Soviets. Um, so we'll kick the Germans out. And basically when the Soviets get to the capital, we're going to be like, ha we're here. We got it. We could work together now. But the Soviets stopped, like you said, right before entering the capital. We're like, ah, we're going to let the Germans finish them off. Um, but, he, you know, the reason we're talking about this is because Pilecki does fight in this Warsaw Uprising. So after this guy escapes yeah. from Auschwitz, he then, again, he's he was sick there, I think, based on what I read, right? Didn't he have like, there's like t- t- tuber- wasn't tuberculosis, he had like two yeah, different um, things.
1: Typhus, yeah, they all had um, yeah. something. From just being um,
0: camp. And he escapes and basically rejoins the um, underground movement and fights, like physical fighting uh, in the Warsaw Uprising. And it's all oh, second reason why we're telling you about this is because, as you mentioned, Tom, this slows down the Russian advance to trying to liberate Auschwitz. So July 1945, war is ending and Pilecki winds up, he survives Warsaw Uprising. Um, he gets out of there and he winds up joining the Polish military intelligence under um, Polish General Anders in Italy. So she, he basically joins the Polish Second Corps, which was a the Polish army. That was sponsored and fought alongside the British. During this time, while well, this is all happening, so now we're, we go to like towards the end of 1945, Poland is occupied now by the Soviets, the so-called Soviet liberators. Union. The Soviet Union has swept through Eastern Europe, uh, halfway through Germany, which eventually becomes East Germany, um, and basically kind of refuses to leave. The Soviet
1: just allowed to do that. Like there was yep. this kind of like the agreement that the Allies said, all right? You can take half of. Half of Europe. You take the eastern part of Europe. That was kind of just like the the deal allowed. And so, for a lot of people in the West, they think May 1945 was the end of the Second World War. But for a lot of people in Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe, it lasted for another four decades, as you know, because they were particularly from Poland, right? They were a communist puppet state. Yeah. So till 1990. You know, um Until 1990. Yeah. So that's it, a whole, you know, it's a whole other thing. He actually does um, go back to Auschwitz at one point. And he sees yeah. that some of his friends there that survived are actually giving tours of people, the touring people around. So they, they're they aware of what happened there. But He yeah. doesn't survive much longer.
0: Uh, and he, that's a good point. You brought that up because what basically happens now, so he's working as a military intelligence officer for Poland, right? I mean, talk about guy that like, you know, earned his pay. Um, he's ordered by the Polish general of this Polish Second Corps to go back into Poland to start reporting... On the political situation under the soviet occupation so it's like well we're supposedly free but we're really not the soviets are creating as puppet said as you mentioned um so your job is to infiltrate them and then send back reports back to the polish government in exile which is located in london and to london as to what is happening in communist poland changes identity he lives under various different names changes jobs frequently um, at one point, he's a, a, like a painter. He's a jewelry salesman, construction warehouse manager. And then eventually what happens in July 1946, his information is uncovered by the Ministry of Public Security, a communist organization. The polls in London actually order him to leave. They're like, uh, I think they got you. Like, you You've you, you got to get out. Yeah. Yep. And he refuses. He's like, no, no, I'm going to stay. and I'm going to keep on trying to get more intelligence. So he refuses, chooses to stay. But... May eighth, nineteen forty seven, the communist authorities arrest him. So, what happens to him?
1: Well, he's basically gets arrested, and then for the next year or so, he's uh, basically just tortured repeatedly. Um, yep. He put he's put on trial, pretty, you know, a sham trial. Of course. And he's executed Televised. as an yeah he's executed as an enemy of the state. Uh, the next year, and according to a Polish newspaper, as he was led to his death, is like that quote that he says. Um, he says i've been trying to live my life so that in the hour of my death i would rather feel joy than fear yeah and he's shot in the back of the head and no one knows where he's buried where his remains went yeah Um, and really a lot of reports about him were hidden away in the polish archives until the 1990s like we've talked about before and like now he's he's a lot of he's been given a lot of awards and hailed as a hero there's been some documentaries coming out. my like, i read some a couple of places that they are planning on making i see that i don't know exactly who this uh, yeah. there's a austrian uh director that's apparently working on a movie based on his life and there's been smaller movies made on his life you know foreign yeah. language movies but no like western uh yeah maybe they could make a movie on him instead of making you know five more indiana jones and more transformer movies
0: you know, I mean I mean I would still I would still <laughs> see more Indiana Jones and Transformers. Yes,
1: I'm not saying anything wrong with those movies, but you know, there's still interesting stories out there that can yeah. be talked about. But he's basically a symbol for many poles that were forced to bury like the their experience in the war for decades. Yeah. And you know, he's 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 definitely a um a, like a hero.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um once he's, you know, when he's arrested and this whole sham of a trial that's going on, he refuses to reveal any information. Uh, he protects all other operatives because they're like, what other operatives are here from the Western? You know, because, again, he's answering to a Polish government that's basically in London. So he's answering to the London allies. So the you know, Soviets are like, who else is here that's spying for London? And he refuses to say anything. Um, so he once he is found guilty and sentenced to death. Actually, there's tons like hundreds of pleas for pardon come from Auschwitz survivors um, that know him. Um, and they're like, no, like, please, like, like, no, no, no. And again, he's, it doesn't really work. It doesn't matter. And he, like you said, he's executed through the most known uh, Soviet form of execution. Um, he was shot to the back of the head in prison in Warsaw. His um, um, children
1: it, who are still alive. um mm-hmm. Like they actually honor the father. They go there every year where he was killed, and they uh, light candles, and hundreds of people join join her every year to like honor Crazy. Him and remember everything about him.
0: Yeah, but we have no idea. Um, yeah, no, we don't, don't really know where. He it it. Well, there,
1: there's, I, I saw there are a lot of um, statues and memorials outside of Warsaw yeah, a lot. to him. They're, yeah, they're, so he's, I mean, the, the poles have not forgotten him. He hasn't been forgotten in that part yeah. of the world.
0: Just kind of outside. Yeah, um, and I guess, Western you know, and I guess because he was, you know, he was controversial and it doesn't really fit with the whole narrative of, you know, everyone's helping. And you remember, it, a lot of this is such a controversial yeah. topic, right, Tom, that as to whether the allies yeah. knew what they knew and why didn't they do anything. Right. It's yeah. there's tons of well, books written mean, about this.
1: Yeah, it was more of what they knew. I'm sure they yep. knew had some idea. Right. Yep. It's of what they knew and what could they have done, what should they have done. And again, their mindsets of it was, it's a, it was just risky going that deep in, or it was no, it was something that um, the better, those resources were better used to try to win the war than just bomb the camp. Like, how yeah. is it going to look if they, if they bomb a prison of war camp? Like, how is that going to make them look? I guess you could look at that, that yeah. perspective also.
0: First real publication of Vito's report, which he winds up um, writing shortly after escaping, um, it's about 100 pages long, and it, we said earlier, it is delivered to the Allies. The first real publication for mass consumption was written or published in 2000, so like 55 years after the war. And then afterwards, additional documents were discovered in 2009, and the first English translation was published in 2012. Uh, the name of that book is Auschwitz Volunteer, Beyond Bravery. If you guys are interested, you could read his own words, what he witnessed there. But yeah, this was a little different. And, you know, we we always like figured out and toyed around with the idea of like, well, we should do something on Auschwitz, and we're like, it's going to be definitely a more than one part kind of podcast. And then we're like, well, maybe we should do something about the Holocaust, and we're like, I, that's going to be a really big podcast. You know, once we started looking into that, I, I feel like this kind of came up, and, and it seemed like an interesting story to really bring up the Holocaust on our podcast um, without yet gearing up for for doing a big Holocaust podcast somewhere down the line.
1: Definitely one of our more intense podcasts, as far as content, as far yeah. as uh, the level of content. But I think it's an important story to uh, talk there because it's one that a lot of people just aren't aware of. Again, they probably heard of it. Maybe they heard of it. oh the guy who snuck into Auschwitz. Yeah, I remember hearing something about that, but some of the details why he went in, how he did it, how he got out, the stuff like that, and just you know, it's exposing the world really to what were the horrors years before it became more well known public
0: knowledge. Yeah, like public knowledge. All right, guys. So uh, thank you so much for joining us once more on our podcast. And I hope that you guys keep on tuning in. We really do appreciate it. If you need to find us, you can find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. We are always here to answer any of your questions and we welcome any comments. So thank you so much. And I hope you guys have an awesome week. Stay safe, everybody. everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that—